This is Jim Gardner, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, Jim Gardner, More to Explore. The name suggests that even after 45 years on the anchor desk at Action News on 6ABC in Philadelphia, there is so much more to explore, both in terms of subject matter and the time I can give to an individual topic or conversation. For instance, Josh Shapiro, the newly minted governor of Pennsylvania. He is still in the first year of his first term, and already he is being talked about as a potential candidate for president in 2028. Shapiro's first salvo in a national campaign may have come in June when a tanker fire caused a section of I-95 to collapse in the Tacony section of Philadelphia. Early projections said it would take months to get the roadway open again. Shapiro would have none of that. I can confidently state right here, right now, the traffic will be flowing here on I-95 this weekend. This weekend. With Governor Shapiro pulling out all the stops, including importing a NASCAR track jet dryer from Pocono Raceway, 95 was back open in 12 days. Shapiro was hailed as a miracle worker by national and local media. Of course, he's not the only governor getting attention as a potential presidential candidate. There's Gavin Newsom in California and J.B. Pritzker in Illinois. Both Pritzker and Shapiro are Jewish. Shapiro observantly so, which raises the question, is America prepared to elect a Jewish president? That's a delicate question, but a legitimate one. It has never happened before. Michael Bloomberg and Bernie Sanders were candidates the last election cycle, and Joe Lieberman was Al Gore's running mate the year of the hanging chad. But the White House has never been occupied by an individual who had a bar mitzvah. And in this day of perceived escalation of anti-Semitism in the United States, is this a time when historical precedents can be smashed like a glass at a Jewish wedding? It is easy to pose the questions, much tougher to answer them. And as you'll find, Governor Shapiro wants us to believe that these kinds of issues are the furthest things from his mind anyway. We had recent opportunity to sit down in a very ornate room in the governor's suite in the State House in Harrisburg. Here is my conversation with Governor Josh Shapiro. Okay, so here is the lead paragraph to an article about you from the Washington Post on January 31st. Quote, Josh Shapiro began his term as Pennsylvania's new Democratic governor by nominating four Republicans to his cabinet. His first executive order, which eliminates a four-year college degree requirement for thousands of state government jobs, was praised by conservative media, and he appeared on Fox News in his first television interview as governor. So (laughs) in this world of hyper-partisanship, what does all this say about Pennsylvania's new governor who was actually talking to and working with Republicans? You know, Jim, when I was sworn in and... um took the oath of office and delivered my inaugural address, I said I want to be a governor for all Pennsylvanians, including those who didn't vote for me. I think when you occupy a position of trust, like being the 48th governor of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, you have a responsibility to be the next link in the chain of progress. You'll see in the governor's office, there's portraits of every governor who served before me. And I recognize I'm here for, relatively speaking, a limited 
period of time. And my job is to advance the ball, to make people's lives better, to get some things done. And the only way you get things done in this business is by working together, by reaching across the aisle and actually working with people to hear their ideas, take your ideas, put it together and make meaningful progress. I realize that our politics today are defined a lot more by Twitter fights and um, extreme partisanship, but you don't make anybody's life better that way. And my job as governor is to make people's lives better. So yes, I appointed Republicans to serve in my cabinet. I've reached across the aisle on legislative matters. I'm communicating everywhere from Fox News to MSNBC to Jim Gardner's podcast to reach people where they are and make sure that they hear from me about the progress I'm trying to make for them. I think this is common sense, and that's the approach I'm taking. During your campaign, you went into areas, parts of Pennsylvania, where, um, let's say, uh, former President Donald Trump Mm -hmm. got 90% of the vote and where Democrats uh, never went to tread prior to you, at least for some period of time. There's a political advantage to this approach in addition to a let's get stuff done approach. No? Am I wrong? No, I think you're right. You have to meet people where they are, on their farms, on their main streets, um, in their downtowns. But it's not just enough to show up. And we did. We showed up over and over again. You actually have to have a proven track record of delivering for them, which I did as their attorney general. And then you've got to have a plan to make their lives better. I think actually most Pennsylvanians that, that I met along the way, even people who are registered in a different party, they don't think of themselves in ideological terms the way so many in the media like to divide people up. And instead, they just think of themselves as Pennsylvanians who need some help. They want their governor to fight for them and give them an opportunity. And, and that's the approach that I took on the campaign. And, and that's what I've been doing um, as governor. Does this make you something of an anomaly in 2023? I don't know. I mean, I guess in this era of hyper-partisanship, um, some people find it strange that we have a governor who's willing to reach across the aisle and try and work with others to get things done. I think it's common sense. Do you risk antagonizing or at least making some Democrats uncomfortable with with your readiness to talk to Republicans? I think any Democrat in this building recognizes that with a Democratic Speaker of the House of Representatives, an historic Democratic Speaker, and a Democratic president pro tem in the state Senate, that's the leading position there, herself a history maker, Um, that nothing's getting through either one of uh, their chambers unless we can find some common ground. Listen, I I am very true to my values, and some people would say some of my values are uh, on the left side of the political spectrum. Like, I'll always defend a woman's right to choose and never let anyone take away our fundamental freedoms to marry who you love, worship where you want, make decisions over your own body here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Some people might say that's on the left side of the extreme. Um, I think our approach on economic development, some people might say, well, that's on the center or the right side. I just don't think about it that way. I try and approach this in a common sense way, stay true to my values, but always be willing to work across party lines to get things done. Can we talk about James Schultz for a second? Sure. We'll talk about whatever. It's your podcast. (laughs) Um, So he was a White House counsel for Donald Trump who said that critics were unfairly taking shots at Trump to enhance their own power. And when he was general counsel for former Republican Pennsylvania Governor Tom Corbett, He opposed gay marriage. He compared it to child marriage. You appointed James Schultz to your transition team. 
did you have to swallow hard to do that? I, I didn't appoint Jim to my transition team because I agree with all the positions he's taken over time. I appointed him in part because I thought it was important to have a diversity of opinion on our transition. I thought it was important to have Republicans and Democrats. And Jim is someone who understands in this building how to get things done, whether I agree with those things or not. And if you're going to try and set the tone early in your administration as someone who's willing to work across party lines, work with others, you've got to be willing to listen to different opinions. Now, here's the thing. I fundamentally disagree with, um, with him on LGBTQ issues. The voters know where I stand on that. I campaigned on it. I'm going to sign bills expanding LGBTQ plus rights in Pennsylvania, never contracting them. So my views didn't change. It's important to me that we have different positions represented around the table. Is there any place where you draw a line? Is there any place where you say that individual cannot be part of yeah. the Josh Shapiro universe because of how they think or what they think? It's a great question. I, I think it's less about a, a person in a position and more about a willingness to engage in a dialogue. Let me, let me put some you know, meat behind this. I'm very open to working with Republicans and Democrats on election reform issues. For example, to make sure that our county commissioners can count ballots earlier and more quickly so we can get, get election I'm results sorry. right. And I'm willing to work with anyone on that, Republican or Democrat. Here's what I'm not willing to do. Invite conspiracy theorists around the table who are still lying about the 2020 election. They don't get a seat at my table. Is democracy under threat in this country? I believe it is. I believe it was um, significantly under threat around the 2020 election and thereafter. And of course, we saw it manifest itself on January the 6th. When the rioters left, I think there were some people who, after the news faded on it, began to think our democracy was safe. And then look what happened in the 2022 run-up to the election. The lies continued. People who secured the Republican Party nominations for governor of Pennsylvania, for governor and Senate of um, states across this country, ran on a platform of conspiracy theories, of hate, of division, the way my opponent did. And I'm not saying that to look backwards, but it's important to answer your question to have that context. The good news is all of those people lost across the country. But that also doesn't mean that our democracy is safe. I spoke about this in my inaugural address. We've been reminded over the last several years of the fragility of our democracy, how we have to keep working at it, how we have to keep fighting to protect it. Here in Pennsylvania, we didn't allow the extremists who peddle lies to drown out the truth. We showed that our system works. Our elections are free and fair, safe, and secure. We are in a stronger position today because certain candidates here in Pennsylvania and across the country were defeated. But a lot of that still is out there. It still exists. And we have to continue to do the hard work to defend our democracy. It doesn't mean, Jim, that we have to agree on every issue. But it does mean we have to agree on three basic principles. That we value our freedom. We cherish our democracy and we love this country. So when I think of um, members of militias, 
uh, and and there are plenty of them in Pennsylvania, right? Yes, uh, and, significant and numbers. places like Michigan. And I can see them, and I can see um, folks who came out for Donald Trump's political rallies wearing MAGA hats and all of that. I can see them saying they believe in those three things. No, I mean, they may interpret those three things differently, but they believe in their freedom when when they when they talk about don't take our guns we have a right to have our guns they're saying that's my freedom jim any member of the us house of representatives right. any member of the state house or state senate who rises to the floor of their chamber and lies about the votes in an election knowingly lies about them as they all do that tells me you don't value democracy what you value is your political future over this country and actually what i think it demonstrates is just a profound personal weakness on their part that they're willing to sell out the values of this nation in order to score some cheap political points they all know it's bull and yet they kept doing it because they thought they were going to be rewarded and then lo and behold jim what happens they lost their elections in 2022 we will see what happens now to the republican party whether they learn from the losses in 2022, or they doubled down on the lies in 2024, which is why I say to you, our democracy is still under threat. Your predecessor, uh, Governor Wolf, placed a moratorium on executions in Pennsylvania in 2015. He asserted that the system claimed innocent lives, or the system claims innocent lives, uh, is not a deterrent to crime, is racially biased, costs a lot of money, and disregards mental illness in the United States. You have said not only will you not sign any death warrants, but you have challenged the legislature. You want the legislature to ban capital punishment in Pennsylvania. Talk to me about that. This was a long journey for me, Jim. Um, in 2016, I ran for attorney general and was very outspoken in my support for the death penalty. I, now, I said it should be reserved for the most heinous of cases, but I was very open and outspoken about that because I fundamentally believed the capital punishment, the death penalty, was a just punishment for certain crimes. As time went on as attorney general uh, and cases came across my desk, I could never act on it in the sense that I could never pursue the death penalty as attorney general, even in these really uh, serious cases. In the wake of the Tree of Life massacre, the, the most um, uh, significant act of anti-Semitism in our nation's history happened right in Pittsburgh. I was asked on Jake Tapper's television show, a Philly native, um, if I supported the death penalty for the killer there. And I said yes. Then I began to really think long and hard about that answer, an answer that was an honest one at, at the time. And after studying the issue, after just sort of going through the process of being attorney general, I was confronted by my then 10, 11-year-old son, Max, who said to me, um, Dad, why, why are you for the death penalty? You think it's okay to kill someone who killed someone else as a punishment? And um, as a father, I couldn't look my kid in the eye and answer his question affirmatively. And that really weighed on me until I came um, to 
running for governor. And I was asked one day on the trail if I supported the death penalty. And um, I said that I had changed on the issue and, and I did not. It didn't garner much attention, candidly, Jim. And then in my first, uh, I guess my second week in office, the first execution warrant came across my desk. Here in Pennsylvania, for someone who's received a capital sentence, for them ultimately to be put to death, it requires the signature of the governor. I couldn't sign it. And I felt that it was important to tell the good people of Pennsylvania my feelings on this issue, how I've evolved on it, how I've changed. I know a lot of people in public life don't ever admit that they've changed. I've changed on this issue for a whole host of reasons. And I, I knew that I would be asked to think about what Governor Wolf had said about the failings of our system mm-hmm. and whether or not my decision was based on that or not. And the truth is it was based on something fundamentally different, that I, f- I fundamentally believe that the death penalty is not a just punishment, that, that our commonwealth should not be in the business of putting people to death. And so rather than call for the legislature to fix it or change it, as Governor Wolf did, and I, I respect Governor Wolf a, l- a lot on this and many other things, I said I think we should abolish it. Because I don't think there's any way to ultimately fix it. Because at the end of the day, it is a system that is fallible and a decision that is irreversible. What does fixing it mean? Well, you quoted Governor Wolf mm-hmm. um, in, in your question here. He talked about the, the bias that's baked into to the system, the fact that mental health issues weren't always considered. You, you cited his rationale. I suppose fixing it means addressing all of those issues. To me, I just don't think it's a system that can be fixed because I think it is unjust. And I just simply don't believe that in my time as governor, Pennsylvania should be in the business of putting people to death. So this will play out in one of two ways. Either during my entire term, um, I will not uh, sign an execution warrant. And thus, folks will... Folks will remain in jail. I'm not suggesting they should get out of jail by any stretch. Um, Or the legislature will work with me to abolish the death penalty as nearly half of the other states have done. To be clear, I I respect that this is a tough issue. It's been a tough issue for me. I've, I've changed and grown and evolved on this. I don't expect every lawmaker to agree with me. Um, they'll begin working on the issue, talking about it. Um, I hope they agree with me. Uh, but I know as long as I'm governor, I won't sign any execution warrants. So the other side of that, not argument, but mm-hmm. but concept, um, Republicans have said, and this is a quote, uh, now is not the time to stop holding criminals to the highest levels of accountability for the most heinous crimes. Removing this measure of accountability and deterrence from prosecutorial discretion is at best tone deaf to the concerns of Pennsylvanians and at worst disrespectful to the victims of the most serious crimes in our society. Yeah, look, I I get the posturing on the other side. I I understand they're trying to score their political points. That's fine. This was a a matter of conscience for me. And understand that um, I'm someone who's put people behind bars for the rest of their lives. Right. Um, I arrested as, as attorney general thousands and thousands of people. Um, I have condemned people to live out the rest of their lives in prison and, and die in prison for the crimes they committed. I'll take a backseat to no one when it comes to being tough on crime. I just simply believe at the end of the day, the death penalty is not just and the Commonwealth should not be in the business 
of putting people to death. Someone might also ask, and, and I'm not sure I know the answer to this, you have 128 individuals on death row in Pennsylvania, or at least that's the last figure that I saw. What's the difference of being on death row uh, or serving a life sentence with no chance for parole? Well, on the one hand, there's no difference in the sense that in neither case will you ever get out of prison. I mean, we haven't executed someone in decades 1999, here. I think right. Gary Heidnick, right? So, and that was voluntary in the sense that he gave up all of his appeals. Um, the cost to keeping someone on death row is much higher than someone who's experiencing life in prison. There is a level of greater isolation for those who are in prison on death row than those who are in prison on life sentences. So there are some differences there. Um, certainly costs taxpayers a significant amount of money. My argument is not based on the cost. I want to be clear. But no, but if you, you abolish, me if you abolish the death penalty, are. you do save the state some money. You would save a considerable amount of money and you would keep people in jail. I think the major difference there would be the level of isolation from the general population within the, the walls of that prison. And again, I want to be clear because I know there's always folks on the other side that want to score points. I'm not suggesting that these individuals should ever be released. I'm just saying that um, my view is the Commonwealth should not be putting them to death. You've had your differences with Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner, but now you seem to be on the same side of this issue anyway. <laughs> if he agrees with me on that, that's fine. Um, you are all too familiar with the crisis of gun violence in America, gun violence in Philadelphia. Nobody knows more about this uh, than you do. Uh, is there anything a governor can do to stem the tide of that violence in whatever city? But let's talk about Philadelphia. Um, the legislature has twice denied the city the opportunity to enhance its own gun laws above and beyond that which are, are state statutes. Um, what can you do to help stem the tide of gun violence in Philadelphia? Well, let me talk about what I can do as governor. I'm someone who believes we need to hire more police in our communities in order to help keep people safe. You see in my budget, um, an investment, a down payment on the hiring of more police, not just in Philadelphia, but across Pennsylvania. You also see an increased investment in anti-violence, proven anti-violence programs that work to keep people away from guns, away from violence, away from things that would wreak havoc on a community. Those are two critically important things a governor can do. Governors can also convene a conversation to bring the community and law enforcement and others closer together to address these challenges, to help a community see a police officer as someone who's there to help them and help a police officer see the humanity and those who live in the neighborhoods they patrol. These are concrete things that I'm doing as governor. I think it is incumbent upon local officials to step up as well, not just with the power of the purse, but prosecuting people to the fullest extent of the law, prohibited purchasers who pick up guns and, um, and whether they use them or not, they commit a crime there. When they use them, make sure that they're put behind bars for a significant period of time. We have to make sure that our police are armed with the best um, capabilities, technology, personnel, so they can make more arrests in fatal and non-fatal shootings. Do you think um, these uh, disturbing 
statistics about gun violence in Philadelphia. When you get to a point where you have 500 homicides during the course of a calendar year, does this reflect only the the societal ills of today, or are there failings on the part of specific individuals and agencies in Philadelphia that that if things were different uh, could give us better results? I, I- I would say it's, candidly, Jim, I think it's both. Um, I think there are broader societal challenges here that, as I said a moment ago, have to be addressed by, by parents and guardians mm-hmm. and churches and community groups and others. Um, so many of these kids need, you know, a, a warm hug and mental health services and um, better education, better schooling and better opportunities to achieve success. We have to make those investments. We have to empower people who are doing great work to do it for more kids and bring up the next generation of people who are going to lead on this issue. It's also true that we need to make more arrests of those who are firing guns in our communities, fatal and non-fatal shootings. And it's also true that the district attorney needs to prosecute people to the fullest extent of the law, something that's not routinely happening in Philadelphia. We need to make sure that we have an administration in Philadelphia that's focused like a laser beam on keeping people safe, not just with shootings, but carjackings and other issues as well. It's very, very hard to grow the economy, to have good schools, to do all the things that we want to do, that I want to do as governor, when people don't feel safe in their neighborhoods. Can we talk about education for a moment? Uh, February 7th, Commonwealth Court Judge Rene Cohn-Jubilier ruled that the way Pennsylvania funds public schools is unconstitutional. And essentially, the judge said that the state funding formula relies too heavily on local property taxes, a system that favors more affluent communities with stronger tax bases over economically challenged communities with weaker tax bases. Bottom line, the state penalizes students who happen to live in lower income and underserved school districts. What the judge did not do is to prescribe a plan to remedy all this, and that will be up to the legislature and, oh yes, the governor. So, Governor, how do we fix this? How are we going to fix it? In 10 words or less, right, Jim? Um, As Attorney General, I filed a brief in that case, um, arguing, in effect, what the judge uh, pointed out in her ruling, that the current way we fund our schools um, is unconstitutional, violates our equal protection. And you're correct. the, The remedy that the judge prescribed wasn't write a check for this amount and send it to this school district, which, by the way, has been done in other states by courts. Um, Instead, she said, um, you need to get together and fix it. The you need to get together is the governor and lawmakers, obviously, as well as some of the advocates that brought this case. I've already convened conversations around this, recognizing that we have both a funding challenge, that is the total amount of dollars that we're putting into our schools, and what I'll call a formula challenge, the way we drive those dollars out. So we need to make sure that there's more equity and more opportunity in our system. I've also um, been working with lawmakers of both parties, back to the issue we started on here, because the only way this gets solved is with Republicans and Democrats coming together and agreeing on how we can have a formula that 
meets our equity responsibilities here in Pennsylvania. Here's what I can tell you, Jim. Um, we will not fix this overnight. Not one budget will generate enough revenue to do this. Um, but it's something that we're going to work at. And it's something that over the course of uh, a few years here will both increase our investment and our equity. It is if not stunning, certainly notable that some other states have had similar court rulings years ago, and they still haven't fixed the problem. Uh, there is no guarantee that you say it won't happen overnight. In some other states, it hasn't happened in decades, and, and they're still trying to solve the problem. There's a, a few things that are a little different in the other states. Um, number one, in the other states, the case went through appeal after appeal after appeal, which took years. Uh, it doesn't appear likely right now that the Republican lawmakers in the legislature will exercise their right to appeal. They have to speak for themselves, but it, it would appear that they are not going to appeal. So that cuts years a big deal. out of the process. Mm -hmm. The other issue is that the judge did not prescribe a, a dollar amount or a formula which judges have done in other states. And then that becomes subject to negotiation and or litigation. What the judges said, and I, I take these opinions very seriously, is you need to get together and, and work at it. And what I've conveyed to the people of Pennsylvania through my budget is we're going to make a down payment, and then we're going to get around the table, and we're going to work on the next payment and the one after that, the one after that to bolster funding, but then also address the equity issues so that we're not leaving communities that don't have a property tax base that they can rely on. Um, we're not leaving their kids behind and we're not overburdening, overtaxing other communities that might have a, a healthier tax base. Can a Jew be elected president of the United States? I, I, I don't know. Um, it's not something I'm thinking about or focused on. Um, I think at the end of the day, anyone can be elected president of the United States. And constitutionally, you just have to be of a certain age. I think the public, and this has been my experience in Pennsylvania, the public is less focused on what you look like, you know, who you love, who you pray to, where you come from, and far more focused on how you're going to make their lives better. There were a lot of folks who said, um, someone who's open about their faith as I am couldn't be elected governor of Pennsylvania. I'm the third Jewish governor, but I'm certainly the most observant and, and open. And I mean, that is no disrespect to, to my predecessors. I think at the end of the day, people are less focused on, um, you know, labels or appearances um, and, and much more focused on how you're going to make their lives better. And if they trust that you're going to make their lives better, then they'll cast their vote for you. I know you don't want to talk about this. I know you won't acknowledge it. You cannot hide from the fact that Democrats and pundits all have your name on a short list of potential Democratic candidates for president in 2028. Here's what the Inquirer said. Shapiro was 49 and just about anyone who has seen his relentless climb expects that he has even bigger goals ahead. And it all goes to his most fervent backers hope that he could be the country's first Jewish president. So many people, Josh, when you say, hey, I've been here for five minutes, my only, my only concern yeah. here is helping the people of Pennsylvania. I'm not thinking about anything it's else. It's true. I, I have no doubt that that's true, except some people will say it is illogical that Josh Shapiro stops with the governorship in Pennsylvania. Why, why isn't that arbitrary? Why would that be? 
How can you expect us, and I say this with all the respect in the world, and you know that, to believe that you don't have already formed ambitions to be president? I can't stop the the pundits or others from speculating or 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 putting their own viewpoint out there. But I can just tell you about myself and how I've always approached these positions. If if you think about the next step, you're going to screw up the job you're in. So I, I know you may not believe this, but I really don't try to think about the next step. I'm focused on doing the work. I'm not speculating about um, my political future or, I get or that anyone go- else. I get that, that governor. But when you were county commissioner, you didn't think that that was the end point of your political career. No, but Jim, um, I, I have always been guided by the idea of serving, of, of, of being in the public arena, of holding elected office. And, and I've had ambition to do that. So that is not, um, I'm not trying to be cute here. Mm-hmm. I don't have ambition to go work in the private sector or do something else. I've been very direct about that with people. What I don't do is sit around thinking, okay, I'm in this job. I'd like to do this other job or the next job. And I really believe that if you allow yourself to start thinking that way, you'll screw up what you're, what you're doing now. I've been entrusted with this awesome responsibility to be the 48th governor of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, one of, one of the, the biggest states in our nation, the most fabulously challenging and complex and wonderful places to govern. This is the work I want to do. And if I allow myself to think about something else, then that takes, a, that takes a focus away from the job I have to do here. Look, it's kind, it's um, humbling that people would think of you in that context, but it's just not something I, I spend any time thinking about. Governor Shapiro, it was great to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you, Jim. Wonderful to see you and wish you great success in this podcast. Thank you. My thanks to the governor for his time. I think he's already proven himself to be a brilliant politician. Needless to say, the political class and the body politic will be scrutinizing him to see if he is an equally good governor. Jim Gardner, More to Explore is a production of Jim Gardner, LLC, and 6ABC Philadelphia. The uniquely talented Matteo Iadonisi and I produced and edited this podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe and also tell a friend. Word of mouth is a great way to help podcasts grow. I'm Jim Gardner.